We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. Adversity can break us and it can also open us up, bring learning, a greater understanding and the possibility of renewal. Obviously, life throws up all sorts of adversity in our path, serious illness, bereavement, losing your job. But the one I want to talk about today is infidelity. I've always said that couples dealing with the aftermath of an affair arrive in my office the most distressed, but leave the happiest. There is something about infidelity that makes a couple look deeper. And while non-infidelity couples know where the bodies are buried, they often decide not to go there. However, couples with infidelity are dealing with so much pain, they're determined to resolve every issue between them. It is what makes my work so rewarding. What I've noticed in the past few years is the person who's been betrayed is prepared to look deeper, not only to their marriage and themselves, but to question everything, which is a cornerstone to creating a meaningful life, and emerge the other side of their recovery not just happier, but wiser too. To discuss the recovery journey, I have two bloggers and authors on infidelity who are far enough down the path to be able to see the bigger picture, but not so much time has elapsed that they don't remember with every fibre of their being the shock, the panic, the pain and the loss of discovery. Helen Tower is the author of two books, Sailing Through Infidelity and Sailing Beyond Infidelity. You'll find details of her blog and podcast, on which I've guested, in the show notes. Lisa Arenz is the author of the book Lessons from the End of a Marriage, and she has a blog of the same name. Once again, full details in the show notes, plus my books on recovery from infidelity and my team of therapists who can help you navigate these choppy waters. I've invited Helen and Lisa because they represent two different journeys. Helen and her husband have healed together, and Lisa has used her experiences to craft a new life first on her own and then with a new partner. They're both supporters of this podcast. So I'm going to talk to Helen first. Helen, you discovered your husband's affair three and a half years ago. Could you give us an insight into your journey and your recovery? Thank you so much, Andrew, for this invitation and for this opportunity. Indeed, three and a half years ago, I had absolute proof that my husband was having an affair Uh, At the beginning, I didn't know with whom he was having an affair, but I had suspected uh, at least one and a half year before discovery. So there's where the journey really began. And I could say it even started earlier because my parents had gone through an experience of infidelity. So somewhat at the back of my mind, I had this possibility in you know as as a as a possibility for my own life and indeed it it happened but i needed to have proof so i put a recorder in my husband's glove compartment in the car and i caught him red-handed really so once i caught him it's like he had become a different person so those 18 months when i was suspecting 
he had become completely a different person. I then, I later realized it was because he was carrying this secret, the secrecy of a double life. And, you know, compartmentalization crumbled and he couldn't anymore. And I could see that he was suffering and he was miserable and he was making the whole family miserable. He was gaslighting me. Uh, and I was really suffering as well. So for me, uh, D-Day or Discovery Day was also my getting back my sanity, recovering the certainty that I wasn't imagining things and that my intuition had been right all along. So since then, we started our recovery process the same day of Discovery. He told me he was relieved that the secret had finally come out. I had already a plan in place uh, since my teenage years when I saw my parents going through it and I went through with my plan of separation. And two months into separation, I realized that I was as miserable as ever and that separation wasn't the solution, that I wanted to work on myself, on my family because I then realized that the life I was in, I had built for 22 years in this marriage with this man. So it wasn't something that I was, I could just put on us on the side. So I decided to work for it. And I wasn't sure if I was going to reconcile with my husband, but I knew that I had to give it a chance because of what I was feeling in that moment. So it sounds like what your mother and father were doing had a, a huge impact on you right from the very beginning, maybe even how you actually chose your husband. Am I right in that? Yes, of course. I have later realised that what my parents went through was traumatic. I was 19, though. I wasn't such a small child. So I didn't have you know, issues of abandonment or anything like that. But I did have a huge fear of not being, not deserving the fairy tale marriage. But since it happened to me, now I am convinced that such a thing doesn't exist. So unfortunately, I went through the disappointment. I grieved it. And now I'm happy with knowing, you know, that SHIT happens and that <laughs> we have to face whatever balls life throws at us. So that's it. And just recently, you've actually celebrated your 25th wedding anniversary. How does, for want of a better word, a real marriage compare with a fairy tale marriage, do you think? In the real marriage, you know that things are not going to be perfect, that you didn't marry Prince Charming and that that is okay. This is the big aha moment. And there's a lot of richness in a real marriage. It's sort of subtler. It's not sort of bright pink and bright blue, but actually all those subtle shades are just as beautiful, really, aren't they? It takes a big weight off your shoulders because in trying to maintain a fairy tale as the truth, it just puts so much pressure on each one of us. I realized lately that it put so much pressure on me that I had to be the perfect wife, the perfect princess who had found her perfect Prince Charming all those years until he also started to crumble <laughs> from the pressure that being the perfect husband meant. 
Thank you, Helen, for sharing that with us. Helen's story, I think, is probably your nightmare. In fact, I think it's probably everybody's nightmare, but she's still standing. So, Lisa, give us an overview of your discovery, because it was really quite dramatic, wasn't it? It certainly was. So even though my situation was completely different, I could relate to a lot of what Helen said, specifically around the pressure of that perfect marriage and also how our childhood experiences really do continue to impact us as adults. So my particular situation, this happened 12 years ago. And at that point, I had been with my husband for 16 years. And at this particular time, I was across the country visiting my dad. Things with my husband were completely normal. I had no sign that there was any trouble. In fact, you know, we were sending text messages and phone calls back and forth, love you, miss you, planning a trip for the next weekend. And then all of a sudden, I received a text message from him that said, I'm very sorry to be such a coward leaving you this way, but I'm leaving you and leaving the state. That was literally the last contact that I ever had with him. So 16 years, text message, done. Um, my dad got me on a plane. We flew back across the country to my home, had no idea what I was coming home to. He had locked the dogs in the basement. He'd been gone for days at this point. Uh, This is the bit that I find particularly (sighs) difficult to understand. He locked your dogs in the basement. He locked the dogs in the basement. I mean, he couldn't even give the dogs over to somebody else to look after. No. But what's so strange is Like he did the dishes and he did the laundry and my clothes were folded on the dresser top. So like he attended to these like strange details, but yet left the animals alone. It makes, none of it makes sense. (laughs) So I get home and there is a typed unsigned letter in the kitchen. Um, You know, just sort of your stereotypical Dear John letter, I guess. I mean, it it blamed me for everything. And again, I at this point had no idea that anything was even going on or that he was unhappy or anything. He had cleared out his personal belongings. I found this strange. He cleared out all of the financial documents from his office, which was kind of a, hmm, something's going on here. As you can imagine, I wanted answers because I, beyond anything else, was just completely blindsided and confused. And he wasn't answering any phone calls, emails, anything. So I got on the computer and I just started looking for anything that I could figure out. And it turned out because of how our emails were linked, I was able to see his junk email. And through that, I saw not only signs of infidelity, but also signs of financial infidelity. Um, It turned out that he had basically, and I still don't know to what extent, but had essentially stolen tens of thousand dollars from me, had opened up credit cards in my name, maxed them out. There was nothing in the checking account, negative money in the savings account. So not only was I you know, completely confused and blindsided and my husband's gone, but I also had literally no money. Um, so discovered the affair from the, the email, but it was really, it was just his junk email. So it was very little bits and pieces I could kind of put together. But then I found an email from a band that was contacting him because they hadn't been paid for the wedding. The wedding? The wedding. Now, this was six days after I got the text message. And putting together the pieces that that I could get from the email, and then I was able to figure out where he was. And 
sure enough, tracked down that a wedding had in fact occurred, which is obviously bigamy and is illegal. So I contacted the police there. And it's just, I mean, it keeps going. I mean, it was such a soap opera. You know, it ended up, you know, long story short, he was arrested, charged with bigamy, ended up basically getting away with it. You know, I don't even know where to go. I mean, it's, I filed for divorce because what else could I do? What a surprise. (laughs) I know. He's gone. He took all my money. And he was continuing to destroy me financially. Like, as long as we were still legally married, I was still vulnerable to what he could do. And then, you know, the loveliness of divorce court, you know, I was ordered to continue to pay for his insurance and all of this while he was doing all these things. So yeah, filed for divorce, ended up divorce was final 10 months later. But kind of the the flip side of all of this, when I received that text message, I collapsed on the floor, as you can probably imagine. And one of the very first things I said while I was still on the floor, I said to my dad, I'm going to make something good come out of this. And at that point, I didn't even know what this was. I just was like, I'm going to find a way to make some good come out of this. And at that moment, I had no idea what that was. But that was something that came over time. And Helen, did you have a a similar sort of thought at the very beginning, some sort of premonition, something coming from something sort of almost sort of deeper inside you in the same way that uh, Lisa had? I was devastated in a way I could have never imagined, even though I had had the experience of seeing my mom devastated. Because I was 19 then, I thought she was overreacting and dramatizing. So when I went through it, I never thought I would feel such pain because after all, I had been warned by life sort of thing. This was my my mantra. And I and then I thought, well, I knew this could happen. Why am I feeling all these strange things I could have never imagined? I did know deep down that even though my original plan was to separate and, and you know, divorce any husband that would dare to betray me like that, I knew that deep down there was a way, there was another way even though I wasn't going to follow in my mother's footsteps because I didn't really agree with how she did things, it was just too painful for her. I knew I had to challenge the situation. I didn't know exactly how. And I think that is actually key to this whole subject of recovery from infidelity, actually. I think you put your finger right on it, Helen. We have so many messages that we've been given about the right way that marriage should be done, the right way that life should be done. And a lot of them are buried so deep down, we sort of actually can't necessarily voice them. It's sort of like explaining that we breathe air because it's so taken for granted that you don't really notice it. And you really do need to challenge all of these things. I mean, Lisa, what have you found that you needed to challenge these preconceptions that, you know, are handed down to us along with the idea of the fairy tale marriage? Oh my goodness. You know, one of my big ones, which isn't completely related, but kind of is, is I thought that I couldn't be okay without him. Mm. And my biggest fear had always been losing him. And we had both lost many friends. I mean, at this point, I had lost 16 friends due to death. And so I was so afraid of him dying. It was just, I had this belief I couldn't be okay without him. 
And then life, of course, is like, here, try. (laughs) Prove yourself wrong. What have you both learned about love? I think one of my big learnings is how much of love comes down to courage and learning to sit with the uncomfortable emotions. Mm. You know, you talked in the beginning about how infidelity, you know, breaks people open and that, that all marriages have, you know, the, 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 those are the dead bodies are buried. You just don't go there kind of idea. And that's something that I definitely do differently now in my current marriage is we face that uncomfortable stuff no matter what. And I think that's such a key piece to it. And we don't think, you know, we think about love as like all the happy things, but so much of it is learning to be in those uncomfortable spaces. In my case, Andrew, it's, um, I'm still working on it. Uh, I have learned that there is not one definition. I went back to basics, um, reading Eric Fromm's book about the art of loving. And I come to the realization that I am a romantic in many ways and that I can still enjoy romantic love in spite of having learned that the the marriage is not the fairy tale story. It's not the fairy tale we're told when we are, when we are children. And, um, I can still feel that passion in my heart when I'm listening to a romantic song. This is the way from puts it. He says that romantic love is more of a, of a virtual love. I think he even uses that word before all of the, the digitalization era was here. And it's true. So I've come to enjoy the moments of this romantic love through a song, through an idea, through even a scene where I am dancing like a princess with the Prince Charming, uh, without necessarily giving that role to my husband, because I know it can only be true in a parallel universe, but I can still enjoy it. And with him, it's about the life we have together and the happy moments we can still have together because we are good together. I have learned that we are two imperfect human beings, but that we are very good together. So it's a work in process for me. And what for both of you was the sort of the moment, the sort of turning point? We heard the bit of sort of Lisa releasing her dogs from the basement. It's going to take me a while to get over how somebody could be that cruel to a dog. Isn't it weird? I'm more upset about what he did to the dogs, which is completely and utterly stupid, but that's the way we go. (laughs) You know what? That's the only thing I still cry about is the dogs. (laughs) I I get it. So what was the turning point that sort of allowed you to get from yours is probably the worst infidelity story I've ever heard. And trust me, I've heard a lot of infidelity (laughs) stories. I mean, what was the turning point that actually allowed you to begin to pick yourself up off the floor? Mine was kind of an anger almost. Up until the the legal divorce, so that was a 10-month period, I was allowing him to continue to control me, even though he wasn't in my life. My thoughts were completely on him and what he was doing and very much kind of that what was done to me, you know, sort of that victim mindset sort of place. And I finally got angry. It was like, I can't do anything to change what happened. I can't do anything to change, you know, those 16 years we had together, but I will be damned if I'm going to let him have the rest of my life. And that's what I had control of. 
And so once I had that mindset, that was my shift. And instead of putting all my energy towards what he did and what was done toward, you know, to me, it was, I'm going to learn from that and grow and move forward and use this to make myself and my life and others' lives better. So, I mean, there's two points that I really like about that is, number one, the positivity of anger. And I think that sometimes we've been taught that anger is wrong, but it actually, in your case, was an incredibly creative thing. Anger can be creative. And you asked possibly one of the important questions in recovery from infidelity, what am I in control of? You know, you're not in control of the other woman or the other man. You're certainly not in control of your partner, um, though we love to think that we are, but we're not. (laughs) The thing that you're actually in control of is yourself. And that's actually rather difficult when somebody's treated you so badly. You think, you know, I can't help myself. I've got to send this text sort of kind of thing. And the truth is you have got control. You don't have to send the text. That is in your control. Helen, what was your turning point that actually allowed you to really have a big shift? I was tired of suffering. I was tired of being miserable. I was tired of not being able to control myself, my thoughts, I had the scenes of the affair because this was a co-worker of my husband. So I knew her. I even had been in her house, invited by her and her husband. Yes, her her husband had cooked for us. Uh, So I, I just kept playing over and over the scenes where these two people were involved and, and wondering why, how, you know, all of this until one day, I just got tired. It started getting a little bit better almost a year after discovery. It took me almost one year just to not have these scenes in my mind 24-7. It was an incredible drainage of energy and using my, my, my everything, my heart, everything was there. It was a mixture of anger, disappointment, and I was even angrier at her some times because of, again, this preconception that a woman shouldn't get involved with a married man knowing and then knowing me and then knowing that I knew her and being married. So for me, all of these were like, I started just judging her even more than I was judging my husband from whom I was sort of expecting that this could happen. But what was completely new in my book was that a married woman who was apparently happy in her marriage, who had a successful career and so on, could do this. So it helped me a lot to be in the tribe with the support of people like Lisa, like you, who just kept reassuring that this was normal, that this was going to pass, that I had to focus on myself. And that's what I did. Thanks to all the support I had from people like you and from my own interest in just looking into it myself, all the TED Talks that talk about infidelity and all the online resources that there are, you name it, I did it. I mean, I I listened to it. I read the books. I did the workshops. I just did it. I just wanted to get out. And what made you decide that you were going to be a blogger and a writer? And that's a question for both of you, but I'll start with Helen, first of all. For me, writing, it's a form of therapy. I had started doing it 
during my midlife crisis that had started five years earlier. Uh, I was very frustrated with my teenage children and where my professional life was. I was basically unhappy in general. And instead of cheating or having an affair, I decided to, to write a book. I wrote a, a book. Also, I had, I had a very good friend my age who died of cancer, leaving very young children. And all of that, you, you know, just triggered this crisis. And I just felt the need to write a book. So I wrote an autobiographical novel that I projected into the future where I basically was the main character and I killed myself when I was 88 and, and all of that. And I had gone through all of the adventures and all of the questionings. And I, I just wrote things that I wanted my children to read when they were young adults, just in case I wasn't going to be around to tell them. Because at their teenage years, they hated me and I hated them. We hated each other. <laughs> so I just wanted to do the right thing because I knew at some point when they became parents themselves, they would have wanted to know a little bit about their roots. And I thought, well, the best way to do it since they're not listening to me anymore <laughs> is to write a book. So I started with the book. And once you write the book, the blog starts and uh, that's how it started. That's the answer to what am I in control of? I'm in control of the fact that on the page, you are in control, most definitely. Lisa, what made you decide to um, be a, an author and blogger? Never thought I would be. <laughs> so I started journaling right when all of this happened, just for my own purposes, kind of working through things. So that was kind of going on in the background. And then Every professional that I encountered, you know, attorneys, police, therapists, everybody kept saying, oh my God, this needs to be a book because everybody was shocked. They were floored by the story. So that sort of planted that seed. So then about a year afterwards, I decided, okay, I'm going to write a book. And then the blog started sort of alongside just to be able to, you know, promote the book and kind of workshop some ideas and that sort of thing. And it's just, grown since then. And then just one kind of, I don't know, little karmic piece that I absolutely love is that book that tells the story of what he did ended up being able to pay for a lot of the debt that he left me with, <laughs> which I just love. <laughs> and possibly one day it might even become a Hollywood movie, to be perfectly honest. It's, it feels <laughs> like... because. You sort of couldn't make it up. If you made it up, everybody would no. think this is a load of old rubbish. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there was at one point my mom and I, we were dealing with, I mean, this was still in the midst of police and everything else. And she and I were in a fast food restaurant and we had paperwork spread out along the tables and we're, we're so in it. You know, we're just talking and all of a sudden we kind of look and everybody's just staring at us. <laughs> Because the things that we're talking about sounds so crazy. And we were kind of like, oh, sorry. <laughs> like, this isn't normal. <laughs> and why are you still blogging? Because this is all happening in 2009, 2010. And, you know, yeah. 10 years later, uh, you're still here. I know. It still it surprises me. And, you know, I check in with myself about once a year of kind of, do I still want to be doing this? And I keep coming back to yes. And the reason for that is... Okay, Helen was talking about how she was devouring all the resources that were available. When this happened to me, there weren't any resources out there that spoke to situations like mine at all. 
And so one of the reasons that I wanted to share, I didn't want anybody else to ever feel as alone in this as I did, because all of the standard things didn't fit. And then the reason I still continue to share is I find that a lot of the resources out there, especially for people dealing with situations kind of like mine, which unfortunately there's a lot of, is that most people are either coming from a place of just sort of regurgitating the pain, which there's a place for that. You need to be heard. You need to share your story, but you also don't want to stay there. You know, the the ideal is like to be heard and then have somebody kind of help move you past that. So there's a lot of that out there. And then there's a lot of people coming from a very like hyper-professional, very removed sort of sanitized version, which I know I would not have been receptive to when I was in that early space. And so what I try to do is bridge both of those because I'm not in that space anymore. I mean, at this point, I'm happy, remarried, everything's good, but I can go back there. I remember what that felt like. And so I try to to be that that voice, that person that gets it. And then also that hope and inspiration and motivation on you can get out of that. And it is a very long recovery journey because, you know, (laughs) Helen is three years in and I'm sure, Helen, if at the very beginning you'd been told that three years later you wouldn't be out of it, you would have laughed or you would have just thrown your hands up in the air in horror. Yes, But it does take a very long time to recover. The thing that I always relate it to is my partner died 25 years ago. I thought at the very beginning, you know, oh, I'll be over this in a year, two year tops. And, you know, 25 years later, I can still occasionally find odd corners of pain. It is an ongoing journey. And so that's why I think it is really important that people like you, Helen, and you, Lisa, keep talking about it because it makes people feel that there's nothing wrong with them because they haven't done and dusted it. And, you know, what most people want is, you know, six months at the top sort of kind of thing. And that there's nothing wrong with you if you're still going at it three, four, five, even 15 years later, you're still finding odd corners of pain. Helen, are there times when you get impatient with yourself about the progress you're making? Yes, there are. Like you said, if I would have heard that it had to take three and a half years to be where I am, I wanted to be where I am now, six months down the road after discovery. But it doesn't happen like that. So we just have to do the best we can. And what I have learned is that I have to be compassionate towards myself and give myself credit for the progress that I've made. One of the things that the blog helps me with is to go back and see where I was when I wrote the articles and see how far I have come, but also to see that what I wrote, that what I realized 15 months down the road, it still applies today. Because all those aha moments, all those, you know, like flashes of wisdom about how life really is and that I'm not the only one suffering and that these things happen. If it's not infidelity, it could be an incurable disease. It could be bereavement. It's so many things that could happen to you, financial distress, health problems. So it's just given me the tools to become a stronger person. I actually started to feel that I was becoming someone 
different and I was scared about how I was feeling 10 months down the road. 10 months down after discovery, I felt I was morphing into someone different. And this someone different now I am, I have just been becoming acquainted with since then until now. And I'm still, you know, getting to know this new me who is a stronger me, who is a healthier me from the mental point of view. I I know myself better. I know my traumas. I know that I have inherited traumas as well. I know that I was born in a certain way, that there are other people that are born in other ways. And what I mean is that I was born a people pleaser because I was afraid not to be loved. So I was born afraid, whereas there are other people, good friends of mine that have been through infidelity as well, who were born and they were warriors. So it just comes with the character. So we come not only with the genes, but we also inherited the traumas of our ancestors. And I am now aware of all of that. And I am working on that. So I'm compassionate with myself. I said, okay, this is my inner child who needs all of this security, this um, assurance from other people because she is scared not to be loved. But, you know, I am an adult now and I have to be responsible for my inner child. So I tell my inner child as an adult what she needs to hear. And I take responsibility for how I'm feeling. And I I sit with my sadness. I sit with my grief or whatever it is that I'm feeling. And it's okay. And I write an article for the blog just to let my followers know that it's okay. You can feel pain, but you can also feel joy. And it's all part of life. Have you come across a book called It Didn't Start With You or It Didn't Start With Me, which is about inherited trauma? Do you know that one, You told me about it and I ordered it, but it didn't arrive, unfortunately, so I have to order it again. Yeah, I'll put the details in the uh, show notes because it really does help you put some of this in context. I mean, with my family, in a sense, we're still processing the First World War that yes. the loss of my great uncle at the Somme had an impact on my grandparents who helped bring up my mother. So mm-hmm. it happened over a hundred years ago, but it's still coursing through our family today. And it's really helpful to understand that stuff because it feels a little less personal. Yes. And Helen, what about your husband? Has he been on a journey too? At least I, I hope he's been on a journey too. Tell me about that. Well, you know, one of the things I've learned is that I cannot really know what he's thinking or feeling because after what we've been through, what I've seen is that he's been very supportive, that he's done everything he can to do what what needs to be done to make me feel loved. And he has fought for me. I won't say for the family. I feel that he has fought for me. He started pursuing me this, the day of the discovery. So the day, the day I discovered him, the two years that I had felt the disconnection from him were over. He became the person I fell in love with when I met him 26 years ago. And I had missed him. Oh, and I can feel the pain just now when you said that. Yes. Yes. I get emotional, of course. Yeah. And It's natural and it is a real gift to us that you can bring it here today. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you too. 
But you can't send him on a journey. This has something he has to do for himself, I think, is yes. what you've learned. Yes. And what I've learned is that his inherited traumas are different from mine. Mm. And I've learned that it's not my responsibility to look into it. And I just acknowledge them and respect them and try to analyze them because obviously my children <laughs> are part of the family tree as well. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, um, I have uh, spoken about this with my mom because she, she has had so much experience, not only through her own experience, but she became a sort of mentor to many other younger we women mm -hmm. once we left home. And she's, she's heard so many stories. And one day I told her, I want to know what he's thinking. And she told me, you don't really need to know what he is thinking all the time. And, you know, it was liberating. And I said, you know what? Yeah, that's it. I'm going to go down this path. I do not want to know what he's thinking or feeling at any point in time. So what I'm doing now with him is I am present in the moment with him as he is next to me. And when he is away, I make sure that I do as many things that bring me joy as possible. I was listening to your podcast about flirting today, and it's so good because it says that you can't make dating or the time you spend with your husband or your partner, you can't make that into the only fun you have in life. So make sure you include a lot of activities that bring you joy. And that's what I have done. I started doing some of them during my time that I was suspecting that he was having an affair because he was gaslighting me. So, you know, I had to somehow survive. So I started incorporating activities that would bring me joy and I still do it. And I think it's very, very important. So, Lisa, what have you learned from your first marriage and infidelity that has actually been positive from your recovery that you're using in your second marriage? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's, <laughs> there's so many things. Two key ones. You know, you're talking a lot about kind of that familial trauma. And mine is, is abandonment. Oh. <laughs> and so, you know, of course, then what happens is my husband then abandons me. You know. But what that did was it helped me heal the trauma that I had from my father and feeling like he had left. And it really helped me sort of self-regulate, both identify and then self-regulate the fears that I have around abandonment. And it means that I approach my marriage now in a very different way. You know, I said before with my first husband, I felt like I couldn't live without him. I have a very different feeling now. I know that I can live without my current husband. I don't want to. I choose to be with him every day and I hope he continues to choose to be with me. But I also know that I don't need him in that same way. And there's a lot of freedom in that. And it takes away a lot of that, that fear of that abandonment. And then the other piece, which I guess is probably kind of related now that I think about it, is how important it is to monitor your own reactions to what your partner tells you. Obviously, looking back, it's like, oh, I wish that my first husband would have come to me at some point when he was struggling with whatever. But if I'm honest with myself, I don't know that I would have been a safe place for him to go with that because I think I would have overreacted. And so 
that was a really hard realization to come to of I wouldn't have judged him. I wouldn't have belittled him, but I would have just... You would have been terrified, wouldn't you? I would have been terrified. Yeah, exactly. Whereas now I'm much more aware of kind of my own fear. And so I can temper my response in the moment, let that fear die down so that then I can come at it from a much more measured place instead of just a panicky place. And we haven't really talked very much about the other person that has been unfaithful, but there was something that you write in your book, which I thought was very wise and really beautiful, because at the beginning of the journey, when we're hurting or the person who's discovered is hurting so much, it's almost impossible to to think about their partner beyond, you know, you hurt me and you're a horrible person. But one of your lessons Lesson number seven from the end of your marriage is when someone hurts you, it's because they are in pain too. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah. And what's interesting is even since I wrote that, I've learned some things and I feel like now I really, and, and I don't know, like I'll never know if this is real, but, but what I'm about to say feels right. I think his parents were alcoholics that I know. I think there was sexual abuse by one of his Boy Scout leaders who then later committed suicide. And my husband never told me about any abuse, but putting everything together, I think there was. And I think there was a lot of shame with that. Again, he kept all of that inside. And then I think what happened is he started drinking. He hid that completely. He wasn't finding success at work. Then he always said, I never want to turn into my father. Well, dad was alcoholic who kept getting fired from jobs. And so he just kept hiding and hiding and hiding. I think a lot of the money that he stole, I think he was pretending to be employed because I found out later that a lot of the supposed jobs he had weren't real. And so I think all of this was him hiding and turning away from himself. And pain begets pain. And really, unless you actually face the pain, and this is something that's really difficult in the aftermath of infidelity, is you're honest. Because the problem is, if you lie to your partner, you're effectively lying to yourself too. I wonder for you, Helen, has honesty been something that's been a cornerstone in your recovery? Yes. One of the things that helped me the most to consider reconciliation again with my husband was that he came clear. He responded to every single question I had. Well, not everything, because I didn't want to know everything, but the questions that would pop into my mind and I would just ask him, he would he would respond to them and he would sit there and tell me, what do you want to know? Go on. And, you know, it went in stages. It's not something that it's done in one session. You have to do it over several sessions, I would say. Not several sessions, hundreds of sessions, (laughs) thousands of sessions. And sometimes you need to hear the same thing several times because at the right at the very beginning, it just goes in one ear and out the other ear, doesn't it? Yeah, well, no, but I, I'm talking about for him uh, telling me what he had been hiding those 
admittedly 18 months. And I say admittedly because this is how long he admitted to the affair. And I still don't know if if he just said 18 months not to make it look too bad. Who knows? It could have been two years. It could have been. Because I know you call it an accidental affair in your book, but to have the courage to, in a small place like this, where I have to hide behind a pen name because otherwise... You know, we we lose our jobs, we lose everything. Mm-hmm. To to have the courage to pursue a married coworker when you are in a position of power and when you are in sight of so many other people, you need to do that really slowly. So that's why I know that it wasn't only the eighteen months where they were perhaps having sex. It started much earlier, yeah. but he would never admit to that because. I agree with how you call it. This happens accidentally. Accidentally. Accidentally in inverted commas. In inverted quotes. In their heads. And I knew that it could happen because it's exactly what happened to my father. He got involved with his personal assistant and my husband didn't get involved with his personal assistant. But, you know, it was someone in his, yes, in his workplace. I mean, what I'm just sitting here gobsmacked by is that sort of how life in the universe has actually given the two of you, whether you want it or not, your worst nightmares. Yes. (laughs) And yet, on some sort of deep fundamental level, this has been a gift rather than a, I mean, it's been a slap around the face as well, but it's been a a gift in some way as well. Am am I completely mad or am I making any sense? Because once you survive your worst nightmare, you know you can survive anything. And the way I see it is that this has brought healing to me and to my my family. I was amazed one day that, you know, my, my youngest is a daughter and she was only eight when I discovered the affair. And it wasn't something that I could keep in secret from my children because I'm too transparent. It mm-hmm. just shows on my face. So one day we were driving together. I had separated, you know, she had moved away from dad and all that. And she told me, you know, mom, don't, uh, don't cry anymore because these things happen. It happened to you and it will happen to me. And she was eight and a half and it's okay. (laughs) Imagine. And I told her, no, I, I hope it never happens to you. It doesn't have to happen to you. So I don't know. I think even though it sounds counterintuitive somewhat, there has been healing there. I don't yeah. Know. And I think it is really important that your daughter can say that because actually saying it actually allows you to be able to challenge it and to bring that back again and talk to her about it again when she's older as well. I mean, I think the problem with all of this stuff is is because it's all kept down. It's not spoken about. The minute you can talk about it, everything begins to change. So yes. it is possible to break the cycle, but you can only break the cycle if your daughter can have that truthful conversation with you and you can hear that conversation rather than just pushing it away and saying, no, 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 darling, don't worry, it won't happen to you, but yes. to take it seriously and you know, maybe even return to it at some point when she's a bit older, maybe when she's seeing boys of her own her, so that uh, you, know, you can return to that conversation. I'm a real believer in change. 
Yes. People often ask me, you know, do you think people can change? And my reply is, well, if I didn't, I would have chosen to do something else a long time ago. There's lots of other things I can do (laughs) beyond sit here and listen to you. If I really thought that people couldn't change, you know, I'd have given this up a long time ago. But I'm still here and I'm still here because I believe fundamentally people can change. And the only way we can change is if we speak it out loud because it's very different out loud from inside. And I also want to add to that, it's never too late for people to change. Mm. You know, I hear from so many people, I'm this age, I I can't change at this point, or I can't. Yes, you can. My grandmother is 102 years old. Wow. And she has been mentally healthier the last 10 years than she has the rest of her life. 102, and she is still learning. She's still growing. She's still changing. It's never too late. Another one of those ideas that we have to challenge is old dogs can't learn new tricks because (laughs) they can. They can. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the advantages of joining the Meaningful Life Supporters Circle is you can write into us with a story and a question. And I have a, a question from somebody who's really in the depths of despair at the moment. And I think it's going to be really helpful to hear what Helen and Lisa have to say. So we've been together for 40 years, but my husband says he's been unhappy for the last 20. He began having online emotional affairs four years ago. Life has been unbelievably horrific since then. He's not made a physical contact with anyone yet, as only searching for a partner abroad, the pandemic has stopped meetings. He continues to search but wants to keep house, etc., just in case. He has no interest in reconciliation now, only interest in finding a new life with a new partner. He's not asking for a divorce yet. My question is, do I wait, do I support, or do I move on? Emotionally and physically, the toll has been extreme on the whole family. Wow. What do you think, Lisa? So first, I just want to say to this person that I am so sorry that you're going through this. This sounds incredibly painful. I also want to recognize the the three things that you said you could do, the, the wait, support, or move on. I really give you credit there because what you didn't say was change his mind. And I give you huge credit for that because I think so many people get stuck right at that point. And they don't recognize the choices that they do have. What stood out to me, though, in your letter was how much you were writing about what he's wanting, what he's feeling, what he's thinking about doing. But what I don't hear is you. Have you been happy the last 20 years? Were you happy before he came to you with this? Are you happy with your life in general? What do you want? What makes you happy? Yeah. And I think that's that piece that you need to get in touch with at this point is he's going to do what he's going to do. And right now, you don't need to make any immediate decisions, but take that time to get in touch with what you really want. 
Helen, what are your thoughts? Yes, I can relate to the suffering, the uncertainty, the feeling when she says it's taking a toll on the whole family. I can understand that because the whole family is relying on one person being happy and there is no control over how or what will make this person happy. And even though he's part of the family, I think that waiting, supporting, or moving on will happen because time will pass anyway. And what this person should do is take control of what she can, which is herself, because she already acknowledges that she's drained. And of course she's drained. She's been unhappy for 20 years. You've been with someone for 40 years. That's that's a, a lifetime. So take good care of yourself, love yourself, be compassionate with yourself. Don't feel that you've been depending on, on this one man your whole life. You can start from today to become more independent. So find a way of empowering yourself because what you've been going through has been traumatic on top of all the traumas that you've inherited and you don't know anything about. So make sure you take good care of yourself, that you breathe deeply, that you eat healthy, that you move your body around, that you do things that that give you joy and the answer will come to you. One thing I would like to add to all of that, I agree with everything that Lisa and Helen has said, is I don't want the waiting to just be a passive kind of thing. I want the waiting to be something that is active for you. Actually thinking about finding something that gives you joy, you know, whether it is learning to play the banjo or training dogs to jump over fences. I mean, if it was me, I would favour the dogs over fences rather than the banjo playing. But, you know, everybody finds something different that is going to be uh, right for them so that you can actually begin to find some joy, a bit of personal development. So I hope you listen to the podcast and, you know, you, you think about some of the ideas, read some books that are interested not just in infidelity, but in emotional journeys and people growing and changing. Because remember, even old dogs can learn to jump over fences. Well, as long as they haven't got arthritis, they can go through tunnels instead. You know, we can learn and do new things. Now, the do I support, I'm not quite certain what support is, because sometimes there can be a sort of supporting that can actually help you learn and grow. And I'd be really interested to hear what um, Helen has to say on this one in particular, because if you sort of listen to your husband's unhappiness for the last 20 years and hear what he was unhappy about and hear what is probably a different version of the movie from your own one, it's going to be really painful. I mean, it's going to be absolutely horrible. But if you sort of listen to it without that sort of internal thing to say, well, it wasn't like that, it wasn't like that, but actually think from his point of view, this is actually how it was. The camera on his shoulder said this, even if the camera on your shoulder said something else. You might actually learn something that might actually help you with your journey moving forward. What do you think, Helen? 
Yeah, but then that sort of support is just couples therapy. You need to do that with a third person who is an expert and can guide you. So you can actually do that. You cannot do that on your own. It's not our role to be their therapists. Well, I wasn't saying be their therapist. I was just saying listen to the other version of the story so that you're not left. Because at the other end of the scale, we've got Lisa, who never heard anything and was just left with all these questions. And you at the moment have the chance to ask the questions. I mean, what do you think, Lisa? I guess my my first thought, which is sort of tangential, is... You know, at the beginning, I mentioned about love being able to sit with the uncomfortable emotions. And to me, this situation is such an example of that because being unhappy in a marriage, completely fine. And if my now husband came to me and said, I'm unhappy, let's talk about it. I would be open and willing and receptive. But when somebody comes to me and says, I haven't been happy for 20 years and I'm only now saying something, that's where I would have a hard time listening because why am I only hearing about this now, 20 years down the road? At that point, it would be difficult to be able to separate, to sort of depersonalize that experience. But I do agree that that is so important to, to not try to get defensive if you want to try to make things work, if you really want to hear what's making them unhappy. And it can be quite painful because it can be things that almost feel like a personal attack. And what's so hard is after 20 years, you feel like, well, I wasn't given a chance to fix that. Because if they bring it up, you know, not immediately necessarily, but if they bring it up sooner, then you have an opportunity to change. You have an opportunity to work on things. But if you're only told so long after the fact, it, it sort of leaves you in a difficult place because you can't change what you've done for the last 20 years. And this is one of the reasons why I love the chance to have these kind of conversations, that as a therapist, one has a different view from somebody who's actually in the trenches. And it is really so nice to actually have a chance to hear all sides. And I hope that it's been helpful to our listener to actually hear these different kinds of approaches. Well, I have to say thank you very much to Helen and Lisa for being my witnesses on The Meaningful Life. And I have to turn to each of them and ask them the most important question of all. Um, I'm going to start with Helen. What makes your life meaningful? Thank you so much for having me, Andrew, in this episode. What makes my life meaningful? Learning and communicating. And that uh, makes me heal. So I am on a quest to healing myself from my, my ancestral traumas and just being aware of my thoughts and being able to articulate my needs because I find meaning in that. I find meaning in, in writing the blog articles where I explain how I feel and giving hope to other people and you know, just getting feedback telling me, wow, you just made that so clear to me. Thank you for articulating that. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for putting it. I can now understand. And I think it's about understanding. That's why I say learning and communicating, because whatever I learn, I understand has helped me heal. And I want to communicate that. I don't want to keep it to myself. Thank you for your generosity, Helen. And Lisa. <laughs> What makes your life meaningful? 
I would say growth. And that's in both a personal sense of always pushing myself to know more, do better, learn from everything around, but also helping others grow. I spent 20 years as a math teacher. And so with that was helping helping my students grow and helping them challenge any of their self-limiting beliefs. And then with the blog and, and all of that, it's helping others grow through their experiences. And with my husband now, it's very much a mindset of growing together. We both are always trying to become better people. And we're always kind of focused forward with that, which I just absolutely love. Well, unfortunately, this is where the conversation ends for most people. But I'm actually going to be asking Helen and Lisa for their sort of top tips for how to recover or how to keep going. Actually, I think instead of, instead of actually recovering, your top three tips for just keeping going on the uh, recovery journey rather than just throwing your hands in the air and saying, oh, this is just too difficult and just burying it and becoming sort of burdened, I suppose. So I'm going to be asking them that. I'm also going to be asking them three things they know deep down to be true. If you'd like to hear the rest of the conversation and all the rest of the goodies, here's the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.